Abba, Father, we give you thanks above all for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who on this day entered in triumph as the Messiah into Jerusalem. We give you thanks for his life of obedience and his sacrifice upon the cross and his resurrection. Enlighten our minds by the anointing of your Holy Spirit that in all things we may seek his honor and glory and the illumination of your word and may only your word be spoken, may only your word be heard in the name of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. Okay. This is the fourth and last of our series on Israelite and Jewish spiritualities to the time of Jesus. And uh, this is, um, I have at this point to say that we have only been able to touch the surface of any of the subjects that we have looked at, and even this involves selection from among innumerable spiritual treasures of Israel and Judea to the time of Jesus. But I definitely wanted to get this excuse me, this particular subject in. Um, what we are looking at now, what we're going to look at today, is the earliest documented form of Jewish mysticism called the Acts or Deeds of the Chariot. The Acts or Deeds of the Chariot, or in Hebrew, Maaseh Merkava. Merkava. And the reason I really wanted to look at this one is because some modern scholars, particularly Alan F. Siegel in his book, Paul the Convert, the Apostolate and Apostasy of Saul the Pharisee, uh, have contended that Paul was a chariot mystic, which he could have been, and that his revelation of Jesus Christ that he refers to in Galatians was in fact something that occurred in the midst of a chariot experience. We will look at that. Um, but uh, I know I asked you to read the first chapter of Ezekiel. How many of you actually read the first chapter of Ezekiel? What? All right, those of you who did, what's your first reaction? Wow. What? Sovereign God. Okay, other reactions? Like an LSD trip. Like an LSD trip. Have you had those before? For people who grew up in my generation, <laughs> almost the inevitable question was, what on earth was he on? But then again, I grew up in the generation of who said, greeted each other, not saying, hi, how are you, but how, hi, are you? <laughs> But before we dig into that chapter, we need to look at a cautionary tale. The four who entered Pardes. 
The Hebrew word pardes, from which we get our word paradise, means orchard. This was a cautionary tale in the Talmud about four great Talmudic scholars who engaged in chariot mysticism and entered into the orchard of mystical experience. Four men entered Pardes, Ben-Azai, Ben-Zoma, Acher, whose real name was Elisha ben Avuya. He is referred to as Acher, the other one, because of what happened to him, and Akiva. Ben-Azai gazed at the divine presence and died. Benzoma gazed and went mad. Acher destroyed the plants, that is, he became an apostate and heretic. Akiva alone entered in peace and departed in peace. And the reason why this tale was told is because this is dicey stuff, even within the conduct context of Orthodox Judaism. This is just not something to be entered into lightly. So, you know, basically what they were saying to you is you got a one in four chance, assuming you have the stature of someone like a Rabbi Akiva, of coming out of this whole insane. So what is Merkava, or chariot mysticism? It is, first of all, the earliest documented form of Jewish mysticism, and we do know that it was practiced from about the year 100 before the Common Era. So it was practiced at the time of Jesus. It was practiced at the time of Paul and the apostles. This was something that some Jewish sages were engaged in. The aim was to experience a vision of the chariot throne of God, which is what is described in the first chapter of Ezekiel. In other words, you were supposed to have this visionary experience of beholding the divine presence, the divine glory, on a chariot throne. So the key text is Ezekiel 1. So... Who would like to start reading, and please wait for the microphone, the first chapter of Ezekiel. The vision of the chariot. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the river Shebar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoshaphat. The word of the Lord came to the priest Ezekiel, son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, in the, and the hand of the Lord was on him there. Okay, just pause for a moment before you go on. He was where? By the river Kibar in what country? He was in Babylon. He was in exile. Okay. And he was a priest. His father's name actually was Buzi. So. 
Um, so that might give some indication of what he was on. Okay, please continue. As I looked, a stormy wind came out of the north, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the middle of the fire, something like gleaming amber. In the middle of it was something like four living creatures. This was their appearance. They were of human form. Each had four faces, each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had human hands and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another, each of them moved straight ahead without turning as they moved. As for the appearance of their faces, the four had the face of a human being, the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Each moved straight ahead, Wherever the spirit would go, they went without turning as they went. In the middle of the living creatures, there was something that looked like a burning coals of fire, like torches moving to and fro among the creatures. The fire was bright and lightning issued from the fire. The living creatures darted to and fro like a flash of lightning. As okay, I, would someone else like to continue? I don't want to add, put the whole chapter on you. Who else, who, who wants to read next? Okay. We're on 15? Yeah, verse 15. <clears throat> now as I beheld the living creatures, behold, one wheel upon the earth by the living creatures, which with his four faces... The appearance of the wheels and their work was like under the color of a barrel, and they four had one likeness, and their appearance and their work was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. When they went, they went upon their four sides, and they turned not when they went. As for their rings, they were so high that they were dreadful, and their rings were full of eyes round about them four. And when the living creatures went, the wheels went by them, and when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Whithersoever the spirit was to go, they went. Thither was their spirit to go, and the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. When those went, these went, and when those stood, these stood. And when those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up over against them, for the spirit of the living creature was in the wheels. And the likeness of the firmament was upon the heads of the living creature was the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. And under the firmament were their wings straight, the one toward the other. Every one had two which covered on this side and every one had two which covered on that. You know, you... No, I think you just... All right, 
I will continue reading while we change batteries. Okay. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings, and there came vo a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking." Okay. Now, I know this really is clear to you exactly what is going on. Okay. First of all, what is this an appearance of? Excuse me? The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. This is a phrase, of course, that occurs all over, especially the Torah. The glory of the Lord. Now, where did the glory of the Lord appear to the children of Israel in the wilderness? Hmm? In the pillar of fire and cloud, which rested on what? The Ark of the Covenant, thank you. And we'll get to that in a moment. What was the Ark of the Covenant, by the way? Well, in a way, what did it have, what did the Ark have over it? The mercy seat. A seat for mercy. Therefore, whose chair was it? Ah, it was God's throne. Okay. So the glory of the Lord appears above the throne. Please notice how many times, like the appearance of as it were, I mean, obviously, he is lost for words here to describe what he is seeing. That's very important in terms of understanding exactly what this involves. So you have the throne of God an appearance of the throne of God, of the glory of the Lord, sitting upon a terrible crystal platform, borne by the wings of the four creatures, chayot in Hebrew. Four creatures, and again, what did they look like? Mm-hmm. First of all, they had bodies like human beings. 
feet like calves. They each had four faces, and the four faces were of what? A human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. Keep in mind, these are each of the creatures had these four faces. They had two pairs of wings each, two of which reached out and touched their neighbor, and two of which they used to cover their body. Okay? Evidently, they did not use their wings really to fly. Now, above the crystal, there was lots of fireworks going on. Any idea what that might represent? We'll see in a moment when we go to Isaiah. Okay. And what was beside each of the creatures? Wheels. Wheels within wheels, and what was the appearance of the wheels? They were basically, you can think of it as a wheel within a wheel at right angles, so they can move in any direction. Okay. And what were they covered all over with? Eyes. And something not all of your translations may have, they also had wings. These are the ophanim. Ophanim. Okay, the winged creatures. All right? Now, no wonder he fell down. Yes? No gospel quartet could ever have existed without singing that old gospel song, Wheel Spinning in the Air. Okay. Yep. Okay. Now, so far, what is, so what is it basically that he's having a vision of by the river Kibar in Babylon? The chariot what? Chariot throne of God. In other words, now what is interesting is where do you usually find a throne? In a palace, in a throne room. Where is this throne? But I mean, what is it sitting on, ultimately? A chariot. A cart. In other words, this is a throne that is not in a throne room fixed. It's mobile. And it can move in any direction, including up or down. Now, where did this get anticipated? We have two texts that I want you to look at. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. And this, again, is an extremely familiar passage. Who would like to read Isaiah 6, 1 through 8? A little less imaginatively challenging. A vision of God in the temple. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Sarahs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. 
With two, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king of the Lord of hosts. Keep going. Then one of the Sarahs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth and it said, with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Okay. Isaiah's call to be a priest. Now where did this vision take place? A little louder, folks. In the temple. What was Isaiah doing in the temple? If he was in the temple, that means he had to be what? A priest. Isaiah was a priest. So was Ezekiel, by the way. But he was a priest probably going about his ordinary everyday duties, which would have included things like lighting incense on the incense altar. Now, where in the temple would he have been? Which part of the temple? He's not in the Holy of Holies because he's not the high priest. Okay? He's in the holy place where the candelabrum and the table of the showbread and the altar of incense were. Okay? What is there facing him then? The veil of the temple that covers the Holy of Holies. What's on the other side of that veil? The Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on it. What is on that Ark, on that mercy seat? What kind of creatures? Cherubim. But what happens while Isaiah is going about his business? The veil, as it were, between this world and the heavenly world is parted And he beholds the Lord of hosts seated upon his throne in the heavenlies, being attended not by cherubim, but by seraphim. Okay, the word seraph comes from the word to burn. To burn. They were like fire. And each of them had six pairs of wings, two covering their face, basically to protect their eyes from the glory of the presence of God. Two, they covered their feet. And I'm putting scare quotes around that for a reason. Most biblical scholars point out the fact that in many Hebrew texts, feet doesn't mean the extremities on the ends of your legs. At least not on that end. And with two, they flew. Okay? 
And one of these seraphs, in order to purify Isaiah's lips, takes a coal from apparently the altar of incense, a burning coal, and touches his lips with it. That must have felt great. That must have felt great. So in other words, picture Isaiah. He's in the temple, in the holy place. On the other side of the veil is the Ark of the Covenant. But for a moment, the veil is lifted. He sees the Lord of hosts on his throne, attended by burning angels, seraphim. Now, to complete the picture, we need to go back to Exodus. And I'll go ahead and lead. Exodus, yes, 25. Actually, I'm going to start at verse 10 rather than verse 17. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside. You shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. <coughs> two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And basically those sides were the short sides, not the long sides. <coughs> you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Their poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat. The Hebrew word is kaporet, which comes from the same root as kapara, which means redemption of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. You shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their, <coughs> their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. In other words, this was the place where God would speak to Moses. <coughs> Up here and God. So it was God's throne. Now, quick question. What were the poles doing there? For carrying it. Why did you have to have the poles to carry it, which were in the rings but not welded, 
as part, you know, so they're not really part of the Ark of the Covenant. And why did they remain there? Because exactly you touch the ark you die that's how sacred it was so what did that make the ark the fact that you always had the poles even in the temple of solomon it still had those poles in it it's ready to move it's portable okay So what I want you to see is the trajectory from Exodus to Isaiah to Ezekiel. You go from portable throne in the physical world to throne in a room in the heavenlies to chariot throne that moves throughout the world. Okay? And later in Ezekiel 10, he will have a vision of that same chariot throne leaving the temple. In other words, the divine presence departed from the temple because it had been desecrated by idolatry. Okay? You're also going from cherubim. By the way, anybody know what a cherub actually looked like? Not according to Hallmark. This is not the Hallmark angelology. It had the body of an ox or a lion, the face of a human being, and the wings of an eagle. Once again, you're beginning to see this sort of tetramorph imagery coming about, okay, where you have elements of the human, the leonine, the bovine, and I don't know what the eagle equivalent is, okay. Those are the cherubim. Those are on either end of the throne itself. You have seraphim attending God in his heavenly throne. So you go from cherubim to cherubim and seraphim. And then, by the way, the flashes of fire moving in and out in Ezekiel's vision, those are the seraphim. So you have ophanim, Chayot, who are the cherubim, seraphim, you're getting a hierarchy of angels. The seraphim give the chayot, the living creatures, their orders where to move. And the chayot, the living creatures, tell the wheels where to move. So you're really talking here about a top-down hierarchy of angels. This is important to keep in mind because you're getting a development, an embellishment of the imagery, which is basically an attempt to describe the indescribable. Okay, so this is the vision you're supposed to get through chariot mysticism. And by the time we get to the actual literature of chariot mysticism, In order even to get to that vision, you have to ascend through levels of heaven, anywhere from three to seven. Levels of heaven. And you have to go from chamber to chamber. The chambers, the word is heichalot, literally sanctuaries. Okay? And each level had guardian angels who kept the unworthy from going further. 
So in other words, this was not a journey to be undertaken lightly. If you were going to go and become a chariot mystic, you were going to have to prepare yourself to ascend through multiple layers of heaven, each of which is protected and guarded by an angel doorkeeper, if you will, and go from one chamber to another, again, protected by angels, in order to have this vision of the chariot throne of the glory of God. That's what we're getting to now. The method that you used was meditation. This is one of the first recordings that we have anywhere in Jewish literature of the use of meditative techniques. One of the favorite meditation methods was meditation on the divine names. Now, what name do you think would probably have been the one they meditated on most? What? Yahweh, the yud, the yud Hey vav Hey, the sacred tetragrammaton you were never supposed to pronounce. Sorry. Okay. Unless you were the high priest once a year. Okay. That would have been the primary one. But there were other names from God, and what they loved to do was to intersperse and intermingle letters of various names and sometimes engage in permutations and combinations and so on and so forth. Uh, so, for example, one of the other things, names of God, is Adonai, meaning Lord, which is the one that was substituted for the yud heh vav -Hey, and they would intermingle these. So you would say, see, yud Aleph, hey Dalad, and so on and so forth, where the letters would be intermingled in different orders. This was one way of meditating that would probably prepare you for this voyage. Also, mirror meditation, gazing generally at a pool of water. The technique was, in some ways, it looks prob probably look ridiculous. You would hunker down with your head bowed between your knees, your cloak or your prayer shawl up over your head to completely cover your head, gazing down at a pool of water that functioned like a mirror until the vision would appear to you in the pool of water. That's why also the people who practiced this were called Yorde Merkava, those who go down to the chariot or descend to the chariot. Yeah. Is this, um, is this chariot mysticism something like what's going on in Revelations with John? Ah. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. Okay. It often involved periods of prolonged, severe fasting. In other words, you are, in a sense, opening your mind to the vision by sensory deprivation. Extreme fasting, and fasting probably would have involved, you know, both food and drink being 
either limited or abstained from entirely. Now the big question that scholars of Jewish mysticism debate to this very day is was it in body or out of body? Do not know. There are some who maintain that you actually physically ascended into the heavens. Others that it was an out-of-body experience where your spirit, as it were, left the body and ascended through the heavenly spheres. Okay? Now, there were certain restrictions on who could practice this, who could learn this, to whom it could be taught. And these are very important. It was not to be taught in public. It was not to be taught in public. In fact, it demanded one-on-one initiation by a master. It could only be revealed to one person at a time. Only by and to exemplary Torah scholars. In other words, you have to have really mastered both the written and oral tradition in order to be initiated into this. Who are of a mature age, generally at least 40. Young people generally were not initiated into this. And needless to say, you had to be male. Now the big question. Was Paul a chariot mystic? Let us look at our key text, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. I can find my right bookmark here. 2 Corinthians 12, let's start just with 1 through 6. Who's reading? It is necessary to boast. Nothing is to be gained by it, but it will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me. Okay. Now, this certainly sounds like chariot mysticism, doesn't it? It sounds like chariot mysticism. The key person who basically introduced me to the idea that Paul was a chariot mystic was a Jewish writer named Alan F. Siegel. And his book was Paul the Convert, The Apostolate and Apostasy of Saul the Pharisee. And what he basically is saying is this experience that Paul describes 
in 2 Corinthians absolutely fits the pattern of chariot mysticism. And if it is chariot mysticism, what makes this interesting is that Paul is the earliest self-reporting record of a practicing Jewish mystic that we have. Literally the earliest record that we have. And Siegel equates this with Paul's revelation of Jesus Christ that he refers to in Galatians 1.12. Okay, yeah. Who was he writing to? Who was Paul writing to? Or he, Yes. He was writing to the church in Corinth. So, I mean, the, the church meaning everybody or yeah. a person? Yeah. But then early on we said that... Uh, wasn't to this, be taught publicly. That's right. Okay. Well, he wasn't exactly teaching it. He was referring to it. Okay. Now... Paul is also described as in the New Testament as a prophet. Okay? Now, when Ezekiel had his vision of the chariot throne, what we don't know is whether he was a chariot mystic. He had the vision, but then he was a prophet. He was given the vision. Okay? So, Paul is described as a prophet, Is this chariot mysticism or prophetic vision? These are not the same thing. Chariot mysticism is a practice, if you will, from below. Prophecy is bestowed from above. Okay? Very different circumstances. What is that? Okay. Chariot mysticism is a practice which you do yourself. Okay, you engage in it. It involves disciplines, fasting, prayer, meditation. Okay, years maybe of preparation through study and mastering this. And the idea is that as a result of this practice, this discipline, this ascesis, from which we get the word asceticism, you have this experience. You, in a sense, give it to yourself. In prophecy, most of the prophets, their experience is they didn't ask for it. They didn't spend time preparing for it. It landed on them like a ton of bricks. Okay? It was God opened their mind and, oi, now I got to do something. Okay? As Amos famously put it, the Lord God has spoken who can but prophesy. There are also chronological problems with this being Paul's revelation of Jesus Christ that Siegel wants to make it. 2 Corinthians was written about 55 and 50 to 56. The vision took place, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, 14 years before that, which would have made it after his conversion, not at 
his conversion. Okay, Cindy, Cindy, where was Paul 14 years in about the years 41 or 42? Where was he? Yeah. You're supposed to know these things. You only know the chronology of Moses. Okay. I'll tell you where he was. He was in Tarsus. He had been sent to Tarsus. He had gone to Tarsus for his own safety by the communities in Damascus and, uh, in Damascus and Jerusalem because people were out to get him because he had been preaching the faith he tried to destroy. And so it was towards the end of his stay in Tarsus, which is where Barnabas went to fetch him to come to Antioch at the beginning of his real public apostolate. So this is well after his conversion, and it cannot therefore be the revelation of Jesus Christ referred to in Galatians, because when he's writing to the Galatians, he's saying, I got the gospel from a special revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I don't think that the experience he is describing in 2 Corinthians is one that can be equated with his conversion experience described in Acts on the road to Damascus. <clears throat> Can't be done will not work out chronologically. And here are some further caveats. Now, let me say this about Paul as a chariot mystic. It is entirely possible Paul had been a chariot mystic before his conversion. You know, that really and truly is a possibility. Okay? because he would have fit the pattern. He would have been an exemplary Torah scholar studying in Jerusalem under some of the prominent teachers of the day. He could very well have come in contact and practiced this. This would certainly explain the form of his vision that he had in Tarsus that fits the pattern of chariot mysticism. But, question. Would Paul have continued to practice chariot mysticism after his conversion? He wouldn't need to. He, ah, he wouldn't need to. He wouldn't need to. There's no evidence that Paul ever initiated any, even of his closest disciples, into the practice of the chariot. And then we get God's response, as it were, to Paul's vision. Turn now to 2 Corinthians, and now we'll go to verses 7 through 10. And to save time, let me just, I'll read this myself. So to keep me from becoming Conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah? curse on him that the, whether it was bad headaches or what it was I don't know but th that just blows me away that God gets Satan to do the dirty work for to keep his apostle with it you can do two things when you talk about the power of Satan one is to underestimate that power the other is to overestimate it for those who are in Christ, Satan can only get away with what God permits, them to, permits him to. And even that is used of God. All things must work together for our salvation, as Paul writes in Romans. So he was only going to let Paul suffer. Right. In other words, my understanding of this passage is that even if Paul was practicing chariot mysticism in Tarsus after his conversion, this was God's cease and desist order. He was saying, no more. You've done with that. And moreover, I'm going to keep you from doing it in the future. Yeah, give you a headache every time you try it. Okay. And the clincher comes in the letter to the Colossians. Okay, we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 23. Someone like to read? Okay. Oh, wait, wait for the microphone, please. I'll hold it. Thank you. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which having been, was no, that's not buried, it's. Yeah. Is it? Mm -hmm. In which you were also raised with him through your faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Keep going here. Keep going. When you were dead in your sins and in the incircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with the idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ through the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now, I don't know if it could be clearer than that, as if to say apparently the Colossian Christians were being bugged by some who wanted to entice them to do what? Let's practice the chariot together. And he's saying, no, you don't need that. Don't even, that, that is a human invention. Okay? Evidently, if Paul had been a chariot mystic, he's completely repudiated it. Okay? And I've got a couple of other passages that I want to quickly share with you. Uh, we're looking at, first of all, Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. And I'll read these just to save us time. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what holy places is he talking about? The heavenly holy of holies. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, through the veil, that is through the flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. We don't need to ride the chariot because to get to the heavenly holy of holies. Okay? Christ is already there. Yeah?
discipline and so forth to do this to get there the way that they had to do it before Christ. That's right. And if you look back at Colossians again, at the point where we broke off from reading Colossians, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now that would seem to just contradict what he just said. Okay. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In other words, not only is Christ in the heavenly holy of holies, sitting at the right hand of God on his throne, who is in Christ with him? You are. You don't need to ride the chariot to the heavenly throne room. You're already there. You are already there. Okay? Seeking? What? It, it, doesn't he qualify that by saying you have to seek him? It doesn't just happen. You have to set your mind. Well, he's, who is he writing to in his letter to the Colossians? He's writing to Christians. So obviously what he's saying is set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly fleshly things. Which include what? Chariot mysticism. Set your things on those things that belong to Christ. Okay? You don't need to engage in this practice. And one final caveat about this. All forms of Jewish mysticism presuppose that their practitioners are practicing, committed, believing Jews. Okay? Jewish mysticism does not make sense outside of the boundaries of Judaism. And so this is meant to contradict such ridiculous things as you have as Madonna saying she converted to Kabbalah. I hate to tell you, you can't convert to Kabbalah unless you convert to Judaism first. Okay? And therefore, for a Christian to practice Kabbalah means that you have to Judaize first. And what Paul is saying, don't submit to that. You've been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. You don't have to keep the dietary laws. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. These things are in, were intended and are grounded in the Mosaic covenant. You are in the new covenant. It would be going backwards. Now, the reason, again, this is something, Kabbalah is hot now. If you Google Kabbalah, you will get so many results. You know, it's unbelievable. If you just type in the keyword Kabbalah in Amazon, you will get probably a good thousand or so of books. It's ridiculous, okay? So... Little final words of caution. Testing spiritual practices because you're about to embark on a study of spiritualities. This is something the modern spirituality movement seems to say, if it feels good, do it. 
and it does grow out of the kind of the new age thing in the 60s and everything like that, where anything that could call itself spiritual was kosher. And I want to suggest several important tests. Does the practice presuppose adherence to a religious tradition other than Christianity? Kabbalah presupposes adherence to Judaism. K-A-B-B-A-L-A-H. Kabbalah. Okay. Does the practice presuppose adherence to a religious tradition other than Christianity? Another good example, transcendental meditation. It really presupposes a Hindu view of the world. Is the practice theocentric or anthropocentric? Is it God-centered or human-centered? This is critical because, you know, one of the key things that you often hear in the spirituality movement is that you undertake this spiritual practice in order to realize your true self. And I don't care whether they're spelling self with a small s or a capital S, that is still anthropocentric. And the problem, as even one Jewish scholar pointed out, is that's assuming that there is a unitary, undamaged, pure self with a capital S to realize. Is the practice cognizant, therefore, of the depth and seriousness of sin in the human condition. Oh my goodness. We have lost the concept of sin in modern society. We really have. And yet, this is something that is central to the gospel message. When Jesus said to the scribes of the Pharisees about why he ate with tax collectors and sinners, he said, I did not come to call, you know, uh, you know those who are, you know, well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So far as I know, the gospel has nothing to say to those who are righteous in their own eyes. The gospel has nothing to say to those who are righteous in their own eyes. Is the practice cognizant of our radical need for divine grace? And or does it think that somehow we can do this on our own? And a lot of spiritualities that are touted and marketed today basically are saying, well, you know, okay, it's nice if you've been saved, but we can, you can take it from here. No, we can't. Is the practice in any way elitist? What was one of the problems with being becoming a chariot mystic? Boy, did you have to have a lot of qualifications. In other words, was this for everybody? No. And I hear other spiritualities that are touted, well, this isn't for everybody. This is just for people who are on a certain spiritual level or who really love the Lord. Horse hockey, yeah? Do you suppose that when they asked him, is this, are you talking just to us? Are you talking to everybody? Yeah. I mean, when he said, Are you, do you mean this for us or do you mean this for everybody? Okay, I'm getting the time signal. Um, 
when, Jesus, when someone asked Jesus, are you saying this merrily to us or do you mean it for other people? Was he questioned whether this was kind of chariot mysticism or something? No. Jesus always taught the disciples what he wanted them to teach everyone. That is critical to understanding the ministry of Jesus. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it in our New Testament. Are you one of these mystics? They were, were they questioned him as to whether he was whether he was one of these mystics? So far as I know, only one scholar has actually indicated that Jesus may have been a chariot mystic, and that is Bruce Chilton in his book Rabbi Jesus. And on the basis of, so far as I know, the only evidence he has that John the Baptist was a chariot mystic is the fact that some forms of chariot mysticism involve meditating on pools of water in John the Baptist's practice near water. And he speculates on that basis that he did initiate Jesus into the chariot, but that Jesus broke with that. But again, he's wanting to find a human rather than a supernatural explanation for Jesus' experience of the heavens being opened at his baptism. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. So why would he need, if he knew, I mean, he wrote the Bible, in effect, okay. But he, he, jumped, he allows us to jump over that, not have to do all those steps. Exactly. Which is why he came in the flesh. Okay. And is the practice consonant with the person and work of Jesus Christ as we see it in Scripture. Okay? Now, what's interesting is you see a whole lot of things in the modern spirituality movement that are basically saying, well, if you really want to know what Jesus was about, you've got to look at these Gnostic Gospels. In other words, they're always looking to extra-biblical sources to explain the person and work of Christ. And, you know, that's... You know, if that's what is the basis of the spirituality, then I hate to say it, but it's not something that you should be involved in. It really isn't. It the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an issue resonating in my head in all that we've done here today. Mm -hmm. Can you come back for another month and talk to us about testing that? Well, I don't know if I can come back for another month. Frankly, I need a break right now. This has been my Lenten discipline, folks. Uh, what I would suggest, however, that is why I appended to your handout John's lovely exposition of testing the spirits drawn mainly from the first letter of John, but also from other sources in Scripture because that is crucial. That is absolutely crucial. Take that, use it as a template 
apply it to anything that is offered to you as a spirituality or a anything, quote, necessary for the true Christian life. Yeah. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. That's the side I lean to. And I know we're over time, but here we go. In a sense, this is a banner text for me. Okay. I myself, this is in Philippians 3, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone ever else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, yo, of the people of Israel, yo, of the tribe of Benjamin, maybe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, yo, as to the law, a Pharisee, yo, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, yes, I have. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And the actual word in Greek is dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Thank you all.